0: you been watching the Winter Olympics at all, have you seen uh, the short track speed skating relay? Like in so many other relays, you do something sort of lame to get the next person going, hand them a, an aluminum stick or tag them. But in this short track deal, man, it's like I'm gonna grab you from the backside and go and push you, right? And like this worship service has been like that. Our music team did their first lap and they grabbed Peter and they're like, go, Peter. And Peter goes his lap and he's like, go, Betsy. (laughs) Betsy prays and like, we're flying around the track. Now we're going to pray and we're going to ask Jesus to give us one more good push um, as we get ready to learn from the scriptures. Lord Jesus, bring your whole self, bring all of your weight. In the Scriptures, the word weight is related to the word glory. Come with all of your weighty glory and grab hold of us. And if we are sleeping, wake us up. And if we have loved you, but our love is growing cold, reignite the flame. And if we have trusted you, but our trust has been buried under a mountain of pain and anxiety. Put tender arms around us and comfort us and remind us that you are strong and that we can be strong again in you. And if we hate you because of what people have done in your name, draw near to us and show us that you are lovely even if sometimes your church is ugly. And Lord, if we are not trusting you this morning because we believe that you are a legend, a myth, a fable, a historical being who's been blown out of all proportion, Draw near in truth. Open our minds to know you as you really are, not as any person says that you are, but as you are, as you make yourself known. Do this for us as we listen to the Scriptures and as we look in them, not to see our own reflections staring back at us, To see your face. Amen. In 2014, there was an article written in a magazine called Salon. You can find this article online called Six Six Reasons Religion May Do More Harm Than Good. And uh, If you were to read that article, you come across a statement at at one point that says any believer, if if you read the article, the, the author is very fair. They're not singling out one specific faith or religion. They're saying this is true of people of all kinds of religious faiths. Any believer looking to excuse his own temper or sense of superiority, warmongering, Bigotry or planetary destruction can find validation in writings that claim to be authored by God. That's from 2014. Um, This trajectory is picking up steam. And if you're not aware of it, you should be. It, It used to be that someone would object to a religious system or religious claim by saying it's not true. You shouldn't believe that because it isn't true. You shouldn't believe that factual claim because it's not factual. You shouldn't believe that historical claim because it didn't actually happen in history that way. You shouldn't believe this or that religious claim because it's untrue. That's shifted now. Keep your eyes and ears open. You'll notice that the primary charge against religious belief these days Christian belief included, isn't that it's untrue, but that it's immoral. That the world becomes a better place the more you practice religious faith. We need to be prepared to live in a world where that kind of shift has already happened. It's not going to happen, it's not happening, it has already occurred. If you speak to anyone who's under the age of 40 and ask them for their primary critique of Christianity, it will be this. Christianity makes the world a worse place. We need to prepare. What, what do we do when our society tells us that we can't be a good citizen of that society and confess Jesus as Lord. We need to prepare. What do we do when we're faced with that choice? That's why we're spending 22 weeks preaching through the book of Revelation because this book was written for people who were faced with that very same challenge. See, this is not the first time in human history that that this has been the challenge to the Christian church. In the first century Roman Empire, believers in Jesus were feeling that same pressure. You can't be a good citizen of Rome and confess Jesus as Lord. So give up your faith in Jesus and be a good citizen, be a good neighbor. That's why we're preaching through Revelation now. Over the next 10 years, this is gonna be the challenge that every Christian congregation has to be ready to face. How do we get ready to face it We listen to the voice of Jesus. We look for a clear vision of Him. And that's what the book of Revelation did in the first century. Remember, all the way back to chapter one, how does this book begin? It begins with a vision of Jesus. How do you prepare to thrive under that kind of pressure that says you have to choose? Either be a good neighbor, a good citizen, or be a Christian. Get a clear vision of Jesus. Maybe you need to go back and listen to that sermon again or read that chapter of Revelation again. Today, we're not in chapter 1. We're in chapter 16. We're seeing a vision of something we've been thinking about already this morning. Final judgment. Something that will happen in the future when Jesus returns and some people might say, see that, that quote up there about superiority and bigotry? Chapters like this in the Bible just prove that you're up to it again. Or, or maybe instead, this chapter is a symbolic description of what it would be like to come face to face with the justice of the God who created this world symbolic vision that serves as an invitation now to prepare for the future by trusting Jesus who has already faced that same justice in our place. Let's listen as a member of In Town. Tom Brinks is going to read our scripture text for the day.
1: Today's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. And I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Times. You just sound smarter if you say it in Latin. So, here's our Latin phrase for the day. Abusus usum non tolet. Abuse does not negate proper use. So, if you read an article like the one I referred to to earlier uh, from Salon, Six Reasons Religion May Do More Harm Than Good, it does a great job of demonstrating that when religious faith is abused, it can make the world a worse place. But arguing that the abuse of something is harmful is not the same as arguing that the proper use of the thing is harmful. A knife can be used to cut your thumb, Or it can be used to slice up meat to serve to guests at a dinner party to celebrate. Now, just because the knife can cut your thumb doesn't mean that all knives are bad always, right? In the proper hands and with patience and skill, you don't have to wear Band-Aids the next morning. Um, So abuse doesn't negate proper use, Is it true that sometimes in the Christian church, parts of the Bible like Revelation or parts of the Bible like Revelation chapter 16, these images of future judgment have been used in terrible ways? Yeah, it's true. It's true that people don't always use the Bible properly. (laughs) It's true. That people do things in the name of Jesus that Jesus never intended. That proves that the abuse of the thing is wrong. It doesn't prove that the thing itself is wrong. And so, I, you know, just a helpful reminder. As you start to hear more and more this critique of Christianity or of religious faith more broadly, that it's always bad, that it always brings harm into the world... Remember those four Latin words if you need to. You can remember the English version if you want. you will sound smarter if you remember the Latin version. Abusus usum non talit. Abuse does not negate proper use. So let's see if we can make proper use of Revelation chapter 16. We're going to start by talking about timelines and then signposts and then a substitute. Two timelines we want to think about in Revelation chapter 16. First is the future. We're in a section of of the book of Revelation that we could call the beginning of the end. Much of this book describes the present. It describes this kind of what happens between Jesus' first coming when he lived on earth and was crucified and resurrected, and then he ascended to heaven and he's going to return one day, a second coming. Well, what happens between the first and second comings? Much of the book of Revelation is about that, this time period that we're living in right now between his first and second comings. So Revelation chapters 1 through 13 describe that present, that period First century Christians lived in that period. Fifth century Christians, 10th century Christians, 21st century Christians lived between the first and second comings of Jesus. But then in chapter 14, we take a turn and we start to, to get visions of the future. What will it be like when Jesus returns? What will happen after his return? And what will the final state of the universe be like once he has completed all that he began in his first coming? What did he begin in his first coming? In his crucifixion, he began the day of judgment by letting it fall on himself first. And he will come again and there will be a a day of judgment. Judgment. And then, in his resurrection, he began this everlasting, unending life of joy and goodness. And he will establish that for all who have trusted him to face the day of judgment in their place. So, chapters like Revelation 16 as they describe the future day of judgment, are actually telling us something about the present. So when will this day of judgment occur? In the future, when Jesus returns. But we're meant to read about it now. We're meant to do something with this now. We're meant to read it, and if we already trust Jesus to find encouragement. Keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. He is is the agent of the Lord God Almighty whose judgments are just and true. Keep trusting Jesus. Don't give up no matter how much you're pressured to do so, no matter how many times others threaten to shed your blood, as verse 6 mentions. If you're not trusting Jesus and you're meant to read this and it's an, it's an invitation, start now. You can be ready when this day of judgment comes by preparing now. Okay, keep trusting Jesus if you're already trusting him. Start trusting him if you're not, but I'm confused, pastor, Where does this text even talk about Jesus? That's where we come to signposts. There's some clear signposts in this chapter based on the Old Testament that ultimately point us toward Jesus. The first one we find in verse 1. I heard a loud voice from the temple Telling seven angels, go and pour out on the earth seven bowls of the wrath of God. Temple bowls. Verse 7. I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, if if we know the Old Testament and we read about this altar which is located in a temple... and and where sacrifices are burned and the coals from those sacrifices are often scooped into bowls and carried around the temple complex by priests for various purposes, then we already know we're reading well these images that are about... So, So here's a diagram of the temple, right? And the main reason I want you to see this is just to get the idea of how big an altar is. See, here's... Here's the temple that Solomon built in the Old Testament, and you kind of see how much of the screen it takes up. And over here on the right hand is is the altar. So if you're like a lot of Christians who've who've walked into Christian churches, you'll see a table like this, and some people will call it an altar, and um, or maybe it's a table set up here on a platform. But in your mind, an altar is kind of a small thing. It's big enough to hold some cups and some plates. But when, when you're reading about a temple with an altar in the Bible, you're thinking of that temple and this altar, which is 15 feet wide and 30 feet long. And it's, it's got a rail around it big enough for several grown men to walk around at the same time. Because throughout God's communication with his people, he has been showing us something happened to break my covenant with you. My, my covenant relationship with humanity has been betrayed. You, you have betrayed the love that I established with you at creation. You have broken the wedding vow that I made as creator. And that you took simply by being created. And you've broken it. But I want to pay the cost that would repair that relationship. And so altars and sacrifices throughout the whole Bible have pointed to the fact that a relationship has been broken. And a cost has to be paid to repair the relationship. If you read the writings of Tim Keller, especially when he's talking about forgiveness, he will often mention this. We can think about it in the, in the context of friendship. You have a friend who hurts you deeply. What now? Well, the relationship has been strained. There's tension there. How, how deep is the tension? Well, it depends on how badly they hurt you. A cost is gonna to have to be paid now to, to, to heal the relationship. The cost could be as simple as, you know what, I'm just gonna absorb the pain. I'm not even gonna to mention to my friend that they hurt me. I, I I can just let this go. But in doing so, you're paying a cost. A cost has to be paid. It might be absorbing the pain and let it go. Or the cost might be your friend needs to be confronted and challenged. And then they need to apologize and you need to forgive them. That's paying a cost. Both of you are bearing the cost of healing the relationship. We can absorb the pain or we can apologize for the pain and forgive it. Or... We might find that the pain is so deep and there's so little willingness to seek forgiveness and apology that that the cost we pay is the the relationship just ends. We stop being friends. It's costly, no matter what option we choose. There is not a cost-free option when a relationship has been betrayed. Sacrifice in the Old Testament, the image of an altar where an animal could be brought was always God's way of saying, you know what? I will let something else absorb the pain in your place. You may not be ready to pay the cost for healing this broken relationship with God, but God says, I will let someone else stand in your place and absorb the pain and face the cost. There's a second signpost here, not an altar, but, but references to the exodus This is a description, a vision of seven plagues being poured out by these angels. And of the seven, five of them resemble the ten plagues of the Exodus back in the book of, well, Exodus. If you know that part of the biblical story, God's people are enslaved in Egypt. Moses shows up in Pharaoh's court and says, God wants you to let his people go so that they can worship him as he intends. And you can't worship God as he intends if you have an empty belly. You can't worship God as he intends if someone else is threatening to lash your back with a whip. Let God's people go so they can worship him as he intends. And Pharaoh says, I won't. And God says, well, let me give you some warnings of what's going to happen. And these warnings will serve also as an invitation to repent. Pharaoh, change your mind, change your heart. And so we get these plagues. And, well, we don't have time to talk about all this right now. But if you uh, find a good commentary or study Bible, it will show you that five out of these seven bowls mirror five out of those ten plagues from Egypt. And, and the, uh, the connection becomes even more clear when you read the Exodus story and Pharaoh refuses to repent, refuses to repent, refuses to repent. And if you read this chapter, you find the same thing happening here. Verse 10 says, they did not repent of their deeds. Verse 9 says, they did not repent and give God glory. Glory. And by the end of the chapter, verse 21, talks about those, those who aren't seeking God's means for repairing the broken relationship with Him. Those who aren't turning back to Him and aren't repenting, they curse God. If you know the story of the Exodus, you know also that it ended with the Passover. Passover. Was the Passover a moment of great judgment or a moment of great deliverance? Yes. Yes. It was a moment when when God's people could say, Lord, you have offered to accept the death of a lamb in our place so that we could enjoy freedom from slavery. What was the sign that you had embraced God's offer in the moment of the Exodus, the first Passover? It was blood, painting the blood of the lamb over your doorpost. Blood shows up a lot in Revelation chapter 16. It has a lot of different functions here. Um, It is the price of faithful love for Jesus in verse 6 as the blood of saints and prophets has been shed. Um, It is assurance of God's justice that the punishment fits the crime. If you read the whole of verse 6, these people who have shed the blood of saints and prophets, God has poured out blood for them to drink. The punishment fits the crime. That's a biblical theme. And when God carries out justice, it's not arbitrary or capricious. He doesn't punish people for um, thinking wrong things, but for doing wrong things. They did not repent of their deeds, verse 11 says. So in verse 6, that, that theme of God always pointing to evidence, to say, this is what you did, and there's going to be a punishment that fits the crime. And so here, blood factors into that. But the first time you meet blood in this chapter is when water is turned to blood in verse three, and then again in verse four. Something that's supposed to give life winds up now becoming a sign of death. And that's the biblical story about what happens when a covenant is broken. God says, I'm going to give you everything you need for life and flourishing. And the things I made that should be these, these signs of life have become signs of death. So I gave you sun and moon, and people choose to worship sun and moon. And that which was meant to bring life and joy becomes a sign of, of death and alienation from the one true God. I'm going I'm to give you food to eat. And this this gift of life becomes just one more reason to say, we don't need God. we got plenty of food to eat. Everything that was meant to give us life has become distorted into death. Because our relationship with God has been... Betrayed and broken. And so, it's that breaking and betrayal of the relationship that's at stake on the day of judgment depicted here in Revelation 16. But here's the thing. This is not the only chapter of this book that talks about blood. The first time we heard about blood in the book of Revelation... It was in praise to Jesus, back in chapter one. By his blood, he has redeemed us. And then we heard it again in chapter five. Who is worthy to open the scroll that tells us what's gonna happen in in the whole plan for the universe? It's the lamb. Why is he worthy? Because by his blood, he purchased for God a people from every kingdom and tribe and nation and language and then we hear about the blood of this lamb in revelation chapter 7 this multitude so big nobody can count how'd they get here the apostle john asks in this vision and he's told they made their robes white in the blood of the lamb And then in chapter 12, we see this terrifying description of a great enemy who wants to destroy God's people, a dragon. Elsewhere in the Bible, known as a serpent. And John tells us, these are images, symbols for Satan. God's ultimate adversary wants to destroy his people. And God says, no, they're going to overcome. Well, how will they overcome By the blood of the lamb. The whole Bible has been telling us this. The whole Bible is full of signposts pointing to this substitute, Jesus. That God has always said, something has broken my relationship with you. I want to repair it, but to do so, a cost has to be borne. And I am willing to let someone else stand in the place. Of you. I am willing to let someone else bear the cost for the curse and the judgment and the price to fall on them instead of on you. Jesus has stood in our place to face the wrath of God. By the time the events described and symbolized in this chapter occur in the future, it will be too late to trust Jesus as the substitute. But the chapter is written now. Because now it's not too late. Now is the time to get ready for that future and to say, Jesus, you, you already absorbed the cost to repair the relationship. How does Jesus talk about that? Well, he talks about it when he talks about what this last meal that he took with his disciples symbolized. So when he picked up the cup, there are four places in the New Testament that tell us what Jesus said in that moment. Two of them say, he said, this is the new covenant. There's the relationship. Covenant is a relationship. In my blood, there's the cost that he's willing to bear. 1 Corinthians 11, Luke 22, that's the phrase. Matthew and Mark, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is my blood. There's the cost of the covenant. There's the relationship. Jesus has already done for us what we couldn't do. And that's why we're to trust him to be our substitute. Well, there are alternatives, other options besides trusting Jesus. Yes, plenty. In the end, they all boil down to the same thing. It's trusting ourselves. God, you've offered a substitute. I think I can do better. I trust myself to find a better deal. Or I trust myself to find a substitute equally good. It doesn't matter the name of the thing or the person that you're trusting, but you're, you're trusting yourself. The same article we referred to earlier says, uh, Today, humanity's moral consciousness is evolving Grounded in an ever deeper and broader understanding of the golden rule. The golden rule, of course, is what Jesus says about loving your neighbor as yourself. So this article about how religious faith makes the world worse is acknowledging that relationships are broken. That neighbors do not love one another as themselves. And that we need to get better at doing that. So we need an evolving, improving, growing, deeper and broader understanding of how to heal broken relationships. So someone completely secular who believes that all religious faith is wrong agrees with what the Bible says about relationships being broken. We share that in common. Well, what do we do to repair, to absorb the pain of these broken relationships? We trust somebody to pay the cost. And this writer says, don't trust any religion, but notice that they're still trusting something. They're still trusting humanity. Humanity's moral consciousness is growing and improving. Everybody trusts something. Everybody has faith in something. If someone tells you, you shouldn't trust Jesus because faith is is a bad way to live, Press deeper in the conversation. Everyone has faith. There is no such thing as faith in nothing. Even if it's only faith in yourself in the end, we're trusting something. The good news of Scripture is if you're trusting Jesus as your substitute, your, your whole life is secure Secure enough to withstand future justice. As on that day, Jesus says, I have already stood in your place. There is nothing left for you to endure of God's wrath because I have already been there and done it and it is finished. Secure enough to withstand the present pressures that would say we have to compromise our trust in him. Please notice, this doesn't mean that we have to be hateful or wicked toward people who don't share our faith in Jesus. Right? We can say, we, we, we agree the world is broken. We agree relationships are broken. We agree the golden rule is good. We agree we should come more and more into line with it. We agree. We agree that sometimes good things can be abused, misused. We agree on all of this. But please, please ask whether the substitute you're trusting is reliable and good. Ask whether the substitute you're trusting is willing to lay down his life in the place of others. Now is the time to trust Jesus to be our substitute. Now is the time to overcome by the blood of the Lamb."